Well, our scripture today is from uh, is from Luke chapter sixteen. And I had thought about calling this, titling this sermon, Look, They Can't All Be the Prodigal Son. Because as awesome as preaching through and sitting under the preaching of the prodigal son parable is, uh, there are other things that Jesus says that are uh, less awesome. Uh, not less true, just harder to get our heads around, harder to understand. Um, some parables Jesus tells. Now, Jesus tells us that the parables he get, tells are are intended to be confusing. They're intended to kind of uh, hide some truths, even while they bring other truths to light. Um, sometimes, though, we read the parables and we're like, well, that doesn't seem very hidden. Like the prodigal son, this seems pretty straightforward. But then there's other parables that you're like, oh, yes, I get that. I don't know what you're trying to bring to light here. And uh, this next parable and passage is sort of like that. I, I heard a teacher and pastor once say something basically to the effect of, um, if you are regularly reading the Bible and not regularly being challenged or convicted or made uncomfortable, uh, you may not be reading the Bible right. Um, the Bible is full of convicting and challenging things. And if we are regularly in God's word, we should expect to be regularly challenged and convicted. And I think uh, in this passage, uh, there is something for everyone to feel um, God's convicting hand on. So let's stand for God. the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter 16. And we'll read the first 18 verses today. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in your account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, 
who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So at Hope of Christ, we our habit is to pretty regularly approach the preaching of God's word in a very direct pick a book of the Bible and work your way through it. Uh, I know that uh, there are times that we'll preach uh, on a topic, especially at at Easter or at Advent time, Advent season. We'll preach on the Advent, um, and other times in the summers we might. Uh, take a break and go for something more topical. But one of the reasons that we're uh, committed to uh, preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is because if we don't, it can be very tempting to just preach on the easy ones. Just find passages that preach more easily, that don't ruffle feathers that don't say things that we have to scratch our heads over. Uh, this would be very easily a chapter, or at least a section of the chapter, that I would never choose to preach on. I barely understand the parable. And in today's time and culture, this whole thing ends with this weird, like, I don't know, is this an ADD moment of Jesus? Like, how... How does that even apply? Because now he's going to go back to talking about another parable about a rich man that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And so how how does all of this flow? I mean, what we have is the beginning. It begins with an odd parable. And then uh, Jesus brings up an old idol. Uh, by the way, it's old idol, not old fool. I apologize for that in the outline. Uh, and then an odd transition. I once, I once heard a definition of conservatives and liberals. And maybe you've heard this. So a conservative feels like the government should speak up about your private life and say nothing about your bank account. A conservative thinks that the government's job is to Put its nose into your private life and stay out of your bank account. A liberal thinks that it's the government's job 
to stick its nose into your bank account and leave your private life out of it. Now, Jesus is never one to accept these bogus choices. Uh, He would say, I get to tell you how you should view your account, your money, your pocketbook, and I get to tell you how you should view and be living behind closed doors. So an early application of this, uh, I heard one person once ask the question, if, if Christianity were ever outlawed in the United States, could someone, could you be convicted just on the record of your checking, of your checkbook? And even as I wrote that down, I realized 80% of you don't even know what a checkbook is. So, could they go to your your monthly statement online and watch your spending habits? Could people look at your spending habits and say, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. Does, does what we do with our money reflect what we believe about God and about our neighbors? Here we've got this odd parable. And just a reminder, it's, it's possible to commend one action of an individual without endorsing the entire individual. We believe that for the presidential candidates we like, or at least that we plan on voting for. We believe you can, you can find a thing about a person that's commendable even while you know you can't say to people, hey, live your life like that guy. Uh, of course, we never give that benefit of the doubt to the guy we're not voting for. Uh, but here is an example of that. Jesus is not telling this parable to give you step-by-step notes and things to do if you are ever caught being dishonest at your job and fired. This isn't a, oh, here's a, here's a Christian way to handle that. He, that's not what he's saying. He, he says at the end of the parable why he tells the parable. So what we have in this parable, there's a rich man. He starts so many parables this way. There's a rich man. There was a rich man. He had barns. He tore them down and built bigger barns. There was a rich man. He, uh, he lived in luxury. We'll see in a couple of weeks. And there was a poor man who lived outside of his front door. Here, there's a rich man. And this man is rich beyond any of our grasping of how rich he is. And we'll see that in just the two examples of people that owe him money. But there's a rich man. He has managers who oversee his wealth. And one of those managers, it comes back to the man, to the master, that one of his managers is dishonest is not working well. It's interesting, that manager never argues. When when the rich man says, what is this I've heard about you? I need you to turn in your records. Uh, you're fired. The man never says, what? That's not true. He's like, mm, yeah, okay. So there's a there's a recognition that he's a dishonest manager. 
And so the manager, he doesn't dispute the charges. He just worries about his future. He's too lazy to dig. He's too proud to beg. And so he comes up with a plan. He calls in all the accounts that he has charge over. And in a parable economy, Jesus just gives two examples. First, he calls in one guy. He says, how much do you owe? This is where we see this is no small operation. These two examples of of loans that this master has given. This one guy owes 100 baths of oil. That's 875 gallons of olive oil. That would take about 150 trees to produce. It's probably about the equivalent of of three and a half years wages that this guy owes to the master. And he says, well, tell you what, cut it in half. Make it 50 baths of oil instead of 100. The next guy comes in. He owes 100 measures of wheat. That's 1,000 bushels of wheat. That's about eight years wages that this man owes to the master. He says, cut 20% off of it. It's actually, when you think about the years of wages, it's an equivalent forgiven forgiveness. Each are forgiven just over one and a half years of debt that they owe to the master. And then when the master learns of it, he commends the unrighteous manager. And that's literally the word. It's not just the dishonest manager. In, in the Greek, it is literally he commends the unrighteous manager for his shrewdness. And so because we get so confused by this, there are so many commentaries explaining what this is all about. Some of them say, well, what he's doing is he's forgiving uh, the exorbitant interest rates that this master was charging. But the thing is, large interest rates were against the law. They're against Israel's, the, the law of God. And so he wouldn't be shrewd. He wouldn't be commended for his shrewdness. He'd be commended for his integrity. That he's just being honest with these people that owe the man and he's, you know, he's being compassionate. Or it could be that some, some say, well, he's, he's just giving up his commission. It's what he would have made off of these loans. But like 50% commission is insane. There's no way he was making 50% on that one loan. And again, the, the master doesn't commend him for his generosity. He commends him for his shrewdness. It's not his integrity. It's not his generosity. It's his shrewdness. His, he uses some ingenuity, some wisdom. He used the influence that he had while he still had it to benefit others so that in the end they might remember him. They might consider him a friend. And this is where Jesus, Jesus makes the application. He says, listen, the sons of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He says, look, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, is he saying wealth that you've acquired by taking advantage of others? That would be unrighteous wealth. 
Or maybe he's saying wealth that you use for your own personal gratification. That would be an unrighteous use of wealth. Or is he talking about unrighteous influence that wealth can have over us? It could just be that he's talking about like all the wealth of this world is just that. That's all it is. It's worldly wealth. It's it's not it's not getting you any closer to heaven. The wealth that you acquire. You know, you, you've heard the story about the man who who death comes to him and says, listen, you're you're done. And he says, oh, well, can I can I bring something with me to heaven? He's like, well, not usually, but uh, that's fine. We'll go ahead. One suitcase. You can have one carry-on. I'll be back tomorrow. Decide what you're bringing. And so he uh, he thinks about it. He's a wealthy man. So he he scrounges and, and, and gets it all together. He gets his suitcase packed. And the next night, death comes. And he, and he says, all right, so what did you decide to bring? And he opens it, and it's full of gold bars. And death scratches his head, and he's like, you brought pavement? Because heaven is described as being paved with gold. The streets are paved with gold. The things that we're killing ourselves for and that we're neglecting our families for and that we're throwing out our integrity over is pavement in heaven. Like it's it's nothing. Jesus says, look, the, the people of this age know how to use their their unrighteous wealth better than than the sons of light. Like use it to gain friends. Use it to use it to gain people so that that like when you do die, there will be people in heaven like welcoming you into eternal glory, like like praising you, thanking you. You know, we we so it'd be like so we at Hope of Christ we support uh, John and Olya uh, Powell in the Ukraine. And we give them monthly uh, to, to support their mission. And maybe, you know, maybe we, we get to heaven one day and the first people that greet us are young Ukrainians. Who because of your unrighteous wealth, they heard the gospel. And they're like, you did this. The use of your money did this. Come, come in. Welcome. Is we use our our money to serve others, so that when it fails, you will be received into eternal dwellings. Now, one reason we know, other than everything else Jesus says about righteousness and and wealth and greed, but even here Jesus isn't d- condoning dishonest uses of money. Because you can look at what he says next in verse 12. He goes on to say, If you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Back in verse 10, who, One who is faithful in a very little is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. Uh, Jesus uses the, and he uses this kind of from less to more uh, talk throughout his teaching. If you are faithful in a very little, you'll be faithful with more. If you are dishonest in a very little, you'll be dishonest with more. We see this pattern 
in even in in the way Paul gives instruction for uh, seeking out elders and deacons. He says, look, if if you if you don't have any control over your own household, what what business do you have running the church? Like it's a it's a from less to more. It's like if you're faithful with a little, then you'll be faithful with more. But if you're not faithful with even a little, why why would you be entrusted with more? But here he's he's talking about our money and our wealth, and he comes back to this old idol in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You will either serve you will either use your money to serve God and others or you will use God and others to get money. But you can't serve both. If money is your master, if money is your idol, your God, then even, even worshiping God is just a means to an end to get God to bless you, to get more out of God. But when God is your master, then the stuff, you look at your stuff and it's like, well, this is like God gave this to me. And he didn't just give it to me so I could feel better about myself. He gave it to me. He entrusted it to me so I might care for others. We will either use God and others to get money or we'll use our money to serve God and others. And when the Pharisees hear this, literally, they turn up their noses. They sneer. They ridicule Jesus. And we're told because they were lovers of money. When you are challenged to be generous toward others, when you're challenged to give to even worthy causes, is your first thought, well, are they going to be faithful with this? I mean... They kind of got themselves into it themselves. I mean, if I give this money to them, aren't I just really, uh, aren't I, what's the phrase? Like, what is it you do? Enabling them. Sorry, I'm losing words today. We can now, we always find all kinds of great excuses for why we don't give. Um, sometimes it feels justified uh, i was always i'm always impressed and i'll have to give bob a dollar but uh when bob used to work uh up in the dc area uh he uh i'm just gonna tattle on you here so he would ride the metro and he would regularly pass the same homeless people almost every day and he felt convicted and decided that he would always have cash in his pockets and any person that asked him for help, he would give them whatever cash he had in his pockets. And he said, and I don't, I, you know, I don't, it, I don't need to 
dig deep and figure out, well, what are you going to do with this? And what, well, how did you get in this position in the first place? Um, could you imagine the generosity of Jesus coming to us that way? Every time we said, hey, I need a, I'm going to need some forgiveness today. Well, why? What did you do to get here? I feel like I forgave you yesterday for this. Uh, aren't you just going to take my forgiveness and use it to... I guess you don't really use forgiveness to buy drugs, do you? I don't know. I mean, whatever it is you would do. But, but Bob wasn't concerned about that. He was convicted that God has blessed him. He's just going to make sure he has cash in his pockets regularly so that any time someone would ask him, he would just give them whatever he had. If it was five bucks, it was five bucks. If it was 45 bucks, it was 45 bucks. Whatever he had in his pocket. Our, our pride, our lack of compassion for others, it just kind of reveals this idol, this idol of, of stuff. And really, idols of stuff are really just idol of self. You know, what's, this is me, this is mine. I did this, I earned this. Uh, it's great that Jesus, Jesus sees their compassion, their sneer, and raises them an abomination. He's like, oh, I, I'll see your sneer, and I'll give you an abomination back. He says, you know what? You, you are so interested in justifying yourself before men, but God knows your heart. And what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Like culture, the world tells you, take care of yourself. Make sure you are taken care of number one. Take care of your family first. That greed, that lack of compassion is an abomination to God. And then this very odd transition, if, if we could even call it a transition. Jesus starts speaking about the kingdom of God and other matters of righteousness. Is he just distracted? Or is he being intentional and saying, listen, Love of money is not your only problem. In fact, our view of our pocketbooks, I keep saying that. I feel, I feel like pocketbook is a thing that's gone away with the checkbook as well. All the kids are going to be like, Mom, what's a pocketbook? Anyway, your view of your bank account, your view of your money really is a, it's a window into so much else in your life. I think that's what he's doing in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. I think he's trying to force the Pharisees and others who are eavesdropping on his conversation with the disciples, other scoffers to see the kingdom. And he wants them to enter the kingdom of God. He says the law and the prophets were until John. He's talking about John the Baptist. He's not saying that God's law and God's word only come into effect until John, but that the law and the prophets uh, a very common way of referring to the Old Testament. 
because those were the two largest sections of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He's saying the law and the prophets came up through John. But now since John, from John forward, the kingdom of God is here. In other words, the law and the prophets have been telling you that the kingdom of God is coming. They've been telling you, be prepared, get prepared, get ready. And I'm telling you, it's here now. The kingdom of God is here. The law and the prophets have paved the way and pointed to and promised the kingdom. And now the kingdom has come by Jesus Christ and those who enter, enter by force. It is a very difficult phrase to interpret. You'll see even at the bottom of any ESV Bible that there's a, it might be read this way. There's a lot of passive verbs in it, especially the, you know, who's doing what by force. The thing is, if it were everyone is entering by force, that would be weird because everyone is indeed not entering the kingdom of God by force. Not everyone is forcing their way in. But everyone who comes into the kingdom of God comes in by force, not necessarily by their force, but by the force of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who comes into the kingdom of God is forced into the kingdom of God, is pushed and pressed and reshaped and changed because to enter the kingdom of God, you're not going to enter it the way you were before it. How many of you remember playing with Play-Doh? And other than like the salty smell, and it, it tastes as salty as it smells, by the way, and every boy in here knows this, but... And most girls, too. I mean, if they're honest, everyone has tasted the Play-Doh. But did you ever have, like, those contraptions that would come with the Play-Doh, the little things that would, like, make shapes out of it? And my little sister had the barber shop. Did anyone remember the barber shop? You put the little dude on the on the thing, and you'd press, and all his hair would come out, and suddenly he was from ZZ Top. And and then you would shave his head and his beard and everything, and, and he'd be ready for boot camp. Uh, but... So that's, that's what I think. So like, you know, they, like the, you put this blob of Play-Doh in and then you press and this star comes out. It's forced out. It comes out in a different shape than it entered. It was, it's forced. It comes out by force. And it's not the force of the Play-Doh. It's the force of the one pressing on it. And the kingdom of God is here. And the people, if you're going to enter the kingdom, be warned, you're going to enter by force. It's going to shape you. It's going to change you. It's going to shave things off that you had hoped you could would cling to you forever. And it's going to be uncomfortable. But you will come out beautiful and glorious. And it will be wonderful. And it's almost as if he's fully anticipating that the listeners and even the readers are going to hear this and make these wrong assumptions about the law and the prophets and say, oh, well, so that was that was then the law and the prophets. And now we're in the kingdom of God and it's all root beer and popcorn and unicorns and and the law and the prophet. That's old stuff. That's that belongs to a different time when God dispensed the law and the prophets. Now he's dispensing of the law and the prophets. And so, but he says, listen, it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for even a grammatical note on the law 
to be taken away. Like the law is not going anywhere. Yes, the kingdom of God brings grace and forgiveness, but the law is still here. And as if, as if he wants to just make an example, he chooses one law. It's almost like, well, here, here's a random law that you first century uh, occupiers of Rome seem to be struggling with. Thankfully, you 21st century occupiers of the U.S. don't struggle with this at all. He says, let's talk. Let's talk about uncomfortable things. Let's talk about divorce. And it's important to understand that he's not talking. He's not just saying this in this broad There's never a reason for divorce because Jesus does talk about things that actually do kill a marriage, that do kill that bond. That, uh, But he's talking here about just the nonchalant approach that the people then had reinterpreted, even the Pharisees had reinterpreted God's law, where God says in Deuteronomy, uh, you cannot divorce your wife except for a, uh, I forget the wording, but uh, it's it's meant to be, uh, uh, except for an immoral act, an indecent act, except for an indecent act. And, and the Pharisees had, no lie, had decided to include in indecent acts burning your supper. So... If you were to burn supper, that is indecent of you and worthy of divorce. Uh, so that's why I don't cook, by the way. So, uh, but there is just this. He's saying, look, he's addressing this pragmatic. What makes me happy? You know, this doesn't make me happy anymore. This does make me happy. You know, his bank account doesn't make me happy anymore. His does make me happy. Her legs don't make me happy anymore. Her legs make me happy. All of this, like, I have literally heard men say to me over a meal, you know, I have been sacrificing so long, I just feel like it's time for my family to make some sacrifices. And I just, I, I'm like, do you hear, how do you not hear what you are saying? Like, love is a sacrifice. There's no getting around it. Like, you will sacrifice for love. The problem is, if you love yourself more than you love others, you will sacrifice them for your love. They will be the sacrifice you make. Jesus says, look, just making some decision. Deciding you're just going to cover your bases. You're going to give your wife the certificate of divorce so you can go and marry this other one. He says, look, that's adultery. Like you're walking out on the covenant, on the oath that you made. To convince a woman, hey, what you need to do is just divorce him and come be with me. That's adultery. You're, this is. Like this, yes, the kingdom of God is coming and the law of God still 
applies. Divorce crushes people. It breaks promises. It's it's adulterous. I'm so glad this passage falls on Communion Sunday. Because, like, I don't know what to do to close the passage. Like, this is where he ends. Now, obviously, this is the beauty of the Bible. He doesn't actually stop talking here. He continues talking and he continues walking to Jerusalem. And he brings this stuff up as he's heading to Jerusalem to die on the cross for adulterers and divorcees and greedy and dishonest and unrighteous. He says, look, the law is still true. You desperately need a savior. You need to come into the kingdom and be forced in and let me shave these things off and let me reshape you. Let me reshape your love that your first love would be God. And then all of the other loves will will flow out of that. We come to the table not because we've all figured it out and we've washed all that sin off and I'm glad I don't do that anymore. We come to the table because we're sinners. We're filthy sinners that need to be reshaped by the love and the cross of Christ. We come to the table because we recognize, like, I have not been living this way. I have not embraced the forcing work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I, I hate what the Spirit is doing to me right now. And we come to the table and we're fed and we're nourished and we're refreshed and we're shaped again so that we can confess our sins, so we can seek forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. So we celebrate not that we are all that and turning up our noses at all of Jesus' teachings, but that we we come humbly to Christ, seeking Him to reshape us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for this, Your table. We pray that we wouldn't just write off uncomfortable passages, but that we would seek Your Spirit's pressure that you would reshape our loves and our longings. God, forgive us for the the ways that we are self-preserving and so grasping of our our finances, the, the good gifts that you've given to us. God, give us a generosity, even if just the generosity of this generation of this age help us to have a view of our money that it serves more than just our our sense of well-being god forgive us for how we've just assumed that your law just can't apply to me and my situation and my circumstance.
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for this table and pray that we would come and be strengthened and revived. We pray that you would work in our hearts and in our lives, that we would seek reconciliation with one another because of the reconciliation that you have worked for us. God, as we prepare to come to the table, would you search our hearts and open our our hearts that we might confess our sin to you. Hear us as we uh, as we come to you now in silence. Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have worked for us. We thank you that you stand at your Father's side, always interceding on our behalf. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the pressing and forcing work you are doing in us. We pray that you would strengthen us for the work you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen.